We all talk about the heat, the heat um, we've been discussing with the heat warnings and everything else. And uh, there is a need out there in our community. And we welcome into the program Cindy Titus, Communications Manager for Main Street Project. And Cindy, I mentioned that, you know, a donation would be great. This is what you're looking for uh, as we go forward here with this heat at the Main Street Project. How are you today? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks. How are you? You're doing very well, actually. Um, so with this heat, um, does water and bottled water become the main need for Main Street Project? Yes, I would say that at this time, bottled water is a significant need for us here at Main Street Project. We typically do an annual bottled water drive um, at some point in the summer, and this year it became urgent much sooner than previous years due to the many days of extreme heat so early into the summer months that we've seen so far. When you do the normal, um, uh, normal, but the usual uh, drive for this, how much bottled water are you looking for, and and how does that compare to what you need right now, a little earlier in the season? I think in in previous years we've put a call out for maybe twenty thousand or so bottles of water, and this year we're asking for help collecting about fifty thousand bottles of water. And again, that's due to the extreme heat so early into the season. Um, We're seeing much more frequent days of extreme heat here in Winnipeg. And the need is really, it's significant through our mobile outreach program and our emergency shelter. We're providing hundreds of bottles of water a day to community members who otherwise have very minimal access to clean drinking water. Right. And, And when is the usual time for this? We do it typically a little later in the summer, you know, probably in July, but we're we're really at the beginning of June now and we're already needing to get it going. Yeah, no, I understand that uh, indeed. And, and really, um, we're talking about the heat in so many facets, and this is the one that's sort of uh, in all the ways that it's been so hot this early in the summer that is really needed. So 50,000 bottles of water is needed. How does somebody go about doing this with Main Street Project? ways if people if people are able to help uh, they can bring bottled water down to our location at 661 Main Street Monday to Friday 8 to 4 um, and then we have a list of, of businesses uh, on our website so mainstreetproject.ca there's a number of amazing local businesses who've uh, offered to collect bottled bottled water on our behalf so look out for that list there and you can drop off um, bottled water at those locations uh, and if folks can't drop off water in person or maybe they're outside of the city and they can't make it to Winnipeg, um, please consider making a financial donation at MainStreetProject.ca. Just note in the donation that it's for water and we'll take care of picking it up. And then um, something that has been really successful in the past is businesses or schools doing water drives on our behalf. Um, it's a very good way to have a big impact. You know, many people coming together makes a big difference. And then I did want to mention as well, we know that times are hard for many people. So if you're not able to donate, that's okay. But please visit our social media channels, which is Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And please share our posts to help get the word out. You know, that's a great thing to say, Cindy, because a lot of people go, you know, I can't afford that. Um, I can't donate at all. And whether it's the bottled water itself or some monetary issues, but you can help get the word out so that more people can. And that's, that's something that's very valuable to Main Street Project, is it not? Yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of our donations come in through our social media channels. And so we definitely understand if someone is not able to make a financial donation or a donation of bottled water, but sharing those posts and liking and commenting on those posts has a huge impact for us. 
When you're asking about 50,000 um, bottles of water compared to 20, that's the normal ask. How does sort of that go over? Does that often get the approach of, of we can do a little bit more here right away? Um, I don't totally know what you mean. Oh, I just meant like, so I think people who have donated in the past are kind of accustomed to, to July. Um, and then now that we have this demand that's up more and, and need another 30,000 bottles that maybe when we, we sort of initiate this project that you're hoping that it can grow a little bit and, and to where we are right now and help immediately. Yeah, for sure. We definitely need the help as soon as possible. We have a little bit of water here on location, but having having more water accessible for our community is a pretty urgent need. And as I mentioned earlier, um, between our mobile outreach and our emergency, emergency shelter, we're providing hundreds of bottle, bottles of water a day to the community. So we definitely go through it pretty quickly in, in trying to meet the need for the community. And that's what I was also going to touch on too, what you just mentioned there is just how big the need is. I mean, there's some left, but you can obviously tell that this is run out, uh, going to run out soon. Yeah, we go through it pretty quickly. Um, and just really any ways that people can help us would be would be very beneficial in keeping the community safe. Um, people experiencing homelessness are at severe risk of heat-related illness, such as dehydration, heat exhaustion, and heat stroke. They don't really get a break from the heat the way that many of us do. Um, you know, if it's really hot outside, a lot of us can go in our houses and take some respite from the heat. And even if we don't have air conditioning, you know, we can... Uh, get a cold glass of water, we can freeze some ice cubes and um, kind of comfort ourselves that way. But a lot of the community that we support, they don't have that option. So this is really um, the best thing that we can do to, to help keep them safe. Right. And and that's the other thing I wanted to bring up is, uh, I mean, we're focused on the water and that's the most important need as you uh, so eloquently put it and, and, and let us know about. But there has, is there some other needs right now with this heat that, that can, people could help out as well as water? Sure, yeah. So uh, we always have a need for seasonally appropriate clothing. Um, so if folks are cleaning out their closets and, and they're looking to get rid of some summer clothing that would be suitable for our community. So t-shirts and shorts, uh, summer clothing like sandals or uh, running shoes, that would be great as well. Sunscreen is always helpful. Um, and then just back to the water. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the water is the need. I want to emphasize that too. Although if you do have some other things uh, to kind of help with. And sunscreen is one I don't think a lot of people think of when it comes to Main Street Project or, or our homeless community. And really, th- that's a need as well, I would think. Yeah, so a lot of the people that we support, they spend a lot of time outside. Um, you know, there are many people uh, sleeping rough in, in encampments and they, they're exposed to the sun all day. So being off, able to offer uh, sun protection like sunscreen, I forgot to mention hats are helpful as well. Um, those items, again, contribute to keeping our community safe. Well, we really appreciate the time, Cindy, and we'll help get the word out. And I like the fact that you mentioned this already, but if you can't donate, uh, by all means, you can also go to their social media and put that word out on your own social media as well to try and get some more help. Uh, 20,000 bottles of water usually are needed. They, they need 50,000. So if you can, by all means, MainStreetProject.ca has all the info, or you can just drop uh, some off at their location. I appreciate this, Cindy. Thank you. Thanks so much. Cindy Titus is a communications specialist for Main Street Project, and let's keep that in mind as we go forward. Uh, Man, that's a big need. That's double of what they usually need. So if you can or have some or can just purchase some or make that donation, it'll be greatly appreciated by Main Street Project and all those that they serve.
right now, I'm very happy to welcome in. It is graduation day, I believe, today for Lori Forsythe. Uh, Lori, thanks for joining me. Is today uh, graduation day? I actually walked the stage yesterday. Yesterday. Okay, that's what I wanted to ensure. I'm getting my days mixed up here. but um, So how was it? Congratulations on graduating the U of M. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was really exciting to finally get to walk across the stage. I defended my dissertation in September, but they don't have a graduation in February, so we had a t- to wait until June. Till June, I understand that. Now, the, the reason, this is an evolving story, Laurie. So the reason we were having you on is because this is one of the first years, uh, I believe maybe the, the first year ever that, uh, no, it is this year and moving forward, Indigenous students will be allowed to wear modified robes with embellishments celebrating their background. Uh, another deep step in the university's work to in, in the reconciliation process and you altered your graduation gown that you wore yesterday but I shouldn't say you did your family did to reflect your heritage how special was that for you it's really incredible I know that in 2018 I graduated with my master's from the University of Manitoba and I wanted to wear a sash and I had to fight at, in line at graduation to be able to wear that sash across the stage uh, but this year, 2023, there were so many sashes, uh, so many folks with different beaded embellishments, both on their hats and uh, on their regalia. Some chose not to wear um, a gown at all, but actually to wear full regalia. So it was pretty amazing to see. But I will say that I didn't know that the University of Manitoba had allowed us to wear beaded uh, robes. That was just something that my family had decided uh, years ago, <laughs> and it, it just sort of happened, I guess, to coincide with me getting to cross the stage. My mother, in January of 2022, she said, okay, so you better get writing because I'm going to start beating. And so <laughs> so I was able to finish my dissertation in time with her uh, beating this incredible gown <laughs> for me. There's that extra pressure to get it done on time, so, <laughs> so good for you. Uh, tell us about the one you wore and who all in your family helped create it. And, and what, I, I mean, we have a photo here, but this is radio, of course. Um, but tell us about all the, all the care and all the different yeah. representations that were on it. Yeah, absolutely. So many hours went into like drafting and creating and beating uh, this creation that my mother, Cheryl Foster, made for me. She's the elder of our Manitoba Métis Federation Bison Local, And so when uh, trying to go and create this for me, she really was considering all of my ancestors and where they had come from. And so the the robe honors all of them. So there's a beautiful intentionality in what's in it. So there are corn poppies from Poland, Manitoba prairie roses, New Brunswick purple violets. Uh, There's a prairie wild uh, columbines and French fleur-de-lis. And there's an English Tudor rose. And then there's Manitoba crocuses. So it really embodies all of the people in which I come from. Right. And and I mean, that must be so significant because I understand that you're one of the first or the first to graduate university with a degree in your family. That's true. Many, many moons ago when I started this journey in 2011, uh, we didn't have anyone in our family that had graduated from university. Uh, and so, but since then, which is really exciting, since starting this and I've now completed my fourth degree we now have like my cousins have completed some degrees we have nurses we have some teachers we have a social worker Uh, my mother is actually also in university right now Uh, so it's really exciting to see what can happen when we see the possible 
Well, Lori, this is the other part of the story that I was referencing with our listeners was your mother, Cheryl, was going to join us today. And being the great mom she is, she had to take care of your niece and nephew. So she was booked with us and then she had to decline to do something way more important. I understand that for sure. Um, But you've inspired her herself to go back to university at the age of 65. Yeah, so at the university across the country, but here in Manitoba, if you're over the age of 65, you can actually take courses for free. Uh, And so uh, after the passing of my brother, uh, she made a commitment to to kind of do this for him. And alongside of myself and my sister, we all went to the University of Manitoba at the same time, which pre-COVID was a magical experience because we were able to have lunch together and drive together and be on campus together and just be learning about ourselves. My mother is doing um, an Indigenous Studies degree at the university, and it has one more year to go until she's finished. So it's been really beautiful to to learn alongside of her. So when your mom graduates with a degree, how old will she be? Oh, gosh, I guess, I mean, I, I, I'll be... Uh, 72, I think it's uh, how old she will be when she is finished, if she keeps on the track that she's on. Amazing. So you inspire her to get a degree, and now I can't imagine how inspiring this is to you. Well, this is it. And I think, you know, I was really privileged when I went to Simon Fraser University that there was a family that went to school together. They came and they drove down to campus. It was two sisters, a mom and an auntie. And it was just like, this is what's possible, right? When we can support each other within the academy and, you know, be experiencing this all at the same time and truly understand what it means to come to a place that is not really meant for us previously. Uh, and that extra support and just being able to have a chat over lunch uh, <laughs> about the various things that are happening in the institution was just wonderful. And uh, I'm so thankful for you joining me today. And I'm a little disappointed your mother couldn't because I wanted to talk to her about that, what you just said there. There was probably a lot of time of her life where she didn't even think this was possible. Well, I mean, I am I'm only 44, but I definitely know in my lifetime, I didn't think that this was possible. Right. I mean, uh, back in the 1990s, I was a high school dropout uh, who returned back to school to finish my uh, diploma. But at that point, we didn't know anything about university. We didn't know how much it cost or how to even navigate the system. And so we went about that thinking there's no way that we could possibly do this. And I never went to university. It took 17 years to finally register after the birth of my daughter. I thought, nope, this is what I have to do for my family. I have to become educated. I have to, uh, you know, live the dream and take a chance. And so I did. How big of a chance was this in your mind then? Well, I mean, I had, uh, you know, when my little one was born, I had was on mat leave. I had a job. I had a full-time career. I had benefits. And I had all the things that everyone always aspires to, essentially. And when I told my mom, I'm going to do this thing. I'm, gonna, I'm going to go to the university. She was like, but why? Right? Because I had everything that my grandfather had had. I had a secured job. I had a pension. I, I had benefits. That was what you dreamed to be. And I was like, no, I've got to do, I've got to do something else. I'm, I want to become a teacher. And, um, and so it was a big chance at that time. And thankfully, I was on mat leave, and I just loved it. And I was like, at the end of my mat leave, I had to make that decision again. Do you continue on with your education, or do you just go back to your day job? And I was like, no, I'm still going to go. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going. And so it's been pretty amazing to think back to those days uh, before coming to the institution and how hard like the Métis hustle was working in the daytime, working in the nighttime, like 
And uh, and now having all of this education and the ability to teach teachers is now what I do at the University of Winnipeg. I teach teachers who are going to teach about Indigenous studies and create spaces for Indigenous learners to be in, to be able to excel as well. It's just incredible. Yeah. And Lori, I like the way you reference it to a dream because that's kind of what it is, right? You just referenced you had everything that we quote unquote in society need, a job, a pension, everything. But is that really living, right? When you're in it, is that the dream? And your dream was different. And although you had all the security, you still pursued your dream. And I I think that's the part of it. I don't know you at all, but I think that's the part of that would have inspired the others in your family that you mentioned that all go now to university. Right. You have to take a chance on yourself and you have to follow your heart uh, and of course make your ancestors proud. But there's a way to do that that also makes your heart sing. Right. Yeah, indeed. And the other thing I wanted to say is that it's so great for you to all go to university together. I lived at home during college and it was to the detriment of my mother. And I still apologize for her in my wild (laughs) college years. I can't imagine her and I driving to school together. (laughs) Well, I mean, again, I came 17 years after. I don't know if I would have done the same thing as (laughs) as an 18 year old, but certainly in my 30s, it was fine. Yes. And and to your point, I would love to actually drive and th- with to school with my mom and take some courses right now. That's a great point. Well, outstanding story, Laurie. And we're too bad we couldn't get Cheryl on, but she's doing again some some even more important work. We appreciate that, and I love the fact that you shared uh, um, that little bit about the Métis hustle and and to where we are today. That you have this gown that you can represent your heritage with, but also the fact that it's inspired your whole family to go to university from a couple of decades ago, you never thought it was possible. You might, that must be so inspiring to you and, and in your teachings now at the U of W. I mean, it's, it is actually really incredible. I'm and just thinking about this gown. So it wasn't like a one day wear thing because I am an academic. I will be able to wear that gown at every convocation ceremony that I attend as an assistant professor. And that really like, when we think about that, this being an embodied principle of matriarch saying to be proud of who we are and demonstrate who we are, even in the institution. Uh, It's going to be really inspiring for all those in the crowd, potentially, that if they are Indigenous and they are finishing their first degree, that grad studies is possible. And And I think that just having that garment to wear at every convocation, I look forward to wearing it um, at the University of Winnipeg convocation next week and being able to sit on that platform to honor the grads both in the in the crowd, but also where they could potentially be if that is what their dream is. And finally, to that point, Lori, because you can speak to it way better than I could ever do as a white male, um, but truth and reconciliation and everything we're talking about, by no means are we anywhere there and, and we still have so much further to go, but is there process being made? And I think your story and your gown itself is part of that we're in a right direction, even though we have a long way to go still. Absolutely. I think one of the things that we, when the TRC calls to action came out, there were 94 of them. They are all significant. They will take years. They will take funding. They will take effort. And I, when I talk to my students about uh, climbing Mount Everest, if we make it to base camp, can we say that we climbed Mount Everest? And they say, well, no. And I said, well, how much longer and how much more money and how much more time will it take to get to the top? And I think that's what we need to think about in reconciliation, that this is not a short haul. This is a long haul process that's going to take generations to actually achieve. And you're, you're leading the way, Laura, in my opinion. And I appreciate you joining me, sharing your story and sharing your inspiration. I, I feel really inspired just by having you on today. So I'm so happy about your gown. I appreciate you sharing the story about your family and especially your mother. And I wish you all the best and, and continue to do the great work you're doing. 
Perfect. Thank you. Keep you mercy for the time. Yeah, well, of course. Lori Forsythe, thank you for the time. What an amazing story. Uh, and I'm so thankful for her taking the time to share it with us. And all the best to Cheryl when she graduates next year. Let's get her on the program as well. Welcome in, Laura Matlaszewski, Human Resources Senior Leader. Uh, Laura, thanks for joining me again. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. We're going to talk ethics and money and work. And when it comes to, in particular, the news of the day yesterday with the Live Golf Tour and the PGA Tour, now being partners after a year-long, very heated litigation-filled battle against each other and its players, And all of a sudden yesterday, out of the blue, to the shock of many of the players who stayed on the PGA Tour and turned down guaranteed money, that -hmm. they are now partners. Uh, You can understand how this has become a tumultuous situation that it already was. Um, First of all, in this situation itself, what do you make of it overall with how a business partnership comes from something that does a total 180? I think the biggest thing to take here is that, you know, you just, PGA was in a position of power at the beginning and then very slowly over the course of the year lost that position of power through a number of things. And, you know, they really took a major risk right from the get-go in making a hard line for their players. And at the end of the day, it really backfired and has worked against them. And is that how you view this as a backfiring from from the PGA itself? Because they are the ones who sort of amalgamated with the league that – they were adamant they would never even do business with. I think the risk of drawing that hard line in the sand is what backfired on them. So they very quickly said that, you know, their players cannot compete in both circuits. They suspended their players. There's litigation throughout the year. They took a hard line, but they were in a position of power. But what happened was Liv became big enough to have a seat at the table. And the PGA lost their players, they lost fans, they were losing money, and then they lost at an actual major event in April when one of the Liz players, Brooks Kupka, won, and now they're losing on the course. So they were they were losing, and this scenario, you know, can be seen as a win-win in terms of just moving forward and trying to make the best of a situation in, like, so much disruption. How do you sort of, if you're the PGA Tour, address your employees when this happens? And yesterday they did, and, and we heard reports that 95% of the, the players listening to the commissioner speak uh, and explain the situation, call them a hypocrite and want him to retire, resign, or get rid of him. Um, because to me, it's kind of like an employee turning down more money to stay loyal to you. And then a year later, you sell a company to the people that sort of was trying to get you to come over. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, sometimes money speaks. Money is the position of power. Um, And I think, once again, he took a major risk right from the get-go. And, um, you know, he even made comments that were more tied to the politics than the business of golf right from the get-go. And, yeah, you're right. His players called him a hypocrite. So he very quickly needs to get, you know, that confidence back from that stakeholder of the players and bring them into the fold of what's going on and why this would be a benefit to them. Yet to be seen if he'll sort of make it out on the other side and in the best position he can. But he, 
he needs to go back into, you know, from a PJ perspective, why did those players stay? What was the legacy and the tradition or the value that kept them? And sort of try his best to harness that, but put it into the perspective of where they are today. Has too much damage been done in a situation like this? And and if so, to whom? And I, I think of the golfers, I think of the reputation, I, I think of, to the fans who might, you know, look at this as well. And, that, and that's really what it's about, right, is the, is the fans, in sport especially, fans are going to watch. And I know they get upset and they say they're not, but but they are doing. Um, what's the PR ramifications of this this turn? Uh, good point. So this scenario the PGA, they were ripe for a disruption and it's not something that has never happened before and it will happen again. And there's lots of lessons to take from a peer perspective and damage control. I think the idea would be if you, if you're in an organization and and this is your scenario, don't take such a hard line, right? Things change. Scenarios evolve. Circumstances, circumstances are always changing and to always take such a hard line, you know, that, that is a risk. They took it. It didn't really work out for them. And now they're having major damage control. I think the players are their biggest stakeholder in terms of that because the fans, although some are loyal, there are a lot who might be interested in this new evolution and this different uh, unity of golf and what it could be in terms of changing things up and moving it to something more modern. But the players are a huge stakeholder for that damage control. And to be seen how that can be controlled and managed. But again, it's going back into, you know, why did you stay? Why did you choose to stay? Why did you forego that money? And what is what are those elements that still exist even in a new scenario and having different uh, stakeholders and more money in the equation? From the standpoint of the PGA Tour and a lot of its players saying, you know, we know where the money comes from, from the Saudi Arabia-sponsored Live Tour and some of the human rights violations, and we don't want any part of that. And um, some golfers saying that the golfers that are over there have blood on their hands by by taking this guaranteed money from companies in Saudi Arabia. And then to have this turn now that you're partnering with them from the PGA standpoint of that. And the PGA themselves are commissioners saying the same kinds of things about the, the Saudi Arabia sponsored live tour. How does that go over? Because I, I think that's a major part of it, right? Like it's, it's really rare that you see anybody, let alone a corporation go, we're not going to be in partnership with people who do business this way. And this is how they get their money. And then say, yes, we are. Yes. This is an Dream example of where the ethical question comes into play. Like it also exists in a smaller scale in North America, right? There are lots of organizations that back different political parties and political agendas. So I think this question of ethics and morals is something that exists for a lot of people. This is very grand. There's a lot of human rights components. They've made public statements. I think at the end of the day, if it's something that is moral, you stand morally against, you know, that's a personal choice and a personal decision. There's various, you know, layers to everything. Um, I just, I feel like that's a question everyone has to answer on their own, but from a a corporate standpoint, again, um, you know, they, had they not made such grandiose statements from the beginning about that, would that be such a, a topic of conversation now? Hard to tell. But this is where making bold statements, hard lines in the sand right from the get-go, you know, can backfire. So that's a lesson for everyone is just 
don't take such extremes because um, you you never know where things might shift and end up and and they have a lot of money and they're doing their live as it was regardless of the PGA alignment or not so it's it is kind of one of those questions where if it's a player, do you, in the game and in the industry, do you align yourself to make it the best outcome possible? Do you, or is it better to stay arm's length? But everyone was kind of losing regardless before this happened, right? You have lawsuits. You're, you're losing your players. There's a question of morale for the team members that didn't leave. So it really was a lose-lose. It's just there's lots of considerations here, and that is unfortunately a very large one, and it's very public as well. Right. Yeah. And and so what's the best way is from an HR perspective to move forward uh, from this decision? And he's, everybody has to answer a whole bunch of questions, especially the golfers who turned down guaranteed money and now are, are there anyway and how they've lost. And they're talking about welcoming back to live golfers, but they won't be welcome back until they pay a fine and all this kind of, of stuff. I, I go to the commissioner's comments yesterday when, when he said he was called a hypocrite and stuff. Um, he said, "I all I can say is what I said at the time was based on the information I have, I had, compared to now. Does he not need to sort of speak to what new information he has?" I would agree that yes, he should. Now, is that something that he shares publicly, or is that a, a conversation within the organization for the players? Um, which I think the latter would be true, right? Like he should focus on what is the communication to those players what questions do they have what concerns how can they tie up these loose ends about integrating the the two unities together do you bring people back are there fines to your point like do you have something to make these players whole that stayed behind there's a lot of nuances here um and i think from a perspective of hr it's going back to that key message going back to those values of what is the pga why are we here what do we what is it to be in the PGA and have those elements changed from yesterday to tomorrow? Um, and if they haven't, then it's really honing in on that. And it's really the health of this organization um, and getting that morale back up, which is difficult and it will take a lot of time. And it's likely something that will like, you know, maybe even take years to kind of see through and all those individual players have to make the choice for themselves if this is the scenario, are you on or are you off? Um, and for whatever reason, they might be. Right. And uh, I, you kind of answered it there, so I'll leave it there with you, Laura. But I was going to say, is there such a thing as bad PR? And regardless of how you feel about this, people are going to watch, right? They're going to watch the fallout of this. They're going to want to need to see it. And um, But it is interesting how, how this is sort of the way it is, and yet uh, um, it's pretty obvious what's going on as, as well. I really appreciate this, Laura. Thanks for the insight on this. Okay, you're welcome. Have a good day. You as well. Laura Matlaszewski, Human Resources Senior Leader, joining us with some great insight there on the Live PGA event that took place yesterday. And by event, I say the 180 by the PGA Tour and the fallout of this will continue to follow.